Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Julia Gillard, and I believe in a world of gender equality. I once gave a speech calling out sexism and misogyny and listing what offended me. Today, I'm adding to that list. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. That's spurred me on. And today I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, which is headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want to create the space for women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. In each episode, I will put a spotlight on women leaders from all walks of life. By celebrating their stories and learning the lessons from their lives, I hope we will all gain insights about what needs to be done so more women get to lead. My guest for this episode of the podcast is Sandy Toxvig, who's told me to say she's cheap, she's here and she's cheerful. Is that right? Yeah, that'll cover it, I think. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Now, Sandy, you studied law, archaeology and anthropology at Cambridge. I'm happy that I managed to say that right. <laughs> uh, but you ended up working in children's television. How yeah. did that happen? It Were you dreaming It can't be right, can it? That's not a good thing. Uh, most of the things that have happened in my life have happened by accident. Uh, these days, I watch young people on television go, it's my dream and it must happen. I'll have a passionate dream. I never had any passionate dreams about anything. Uh, I thought I was going to be a human rights lawyer. Uh, then I got uh, put off the law because, uh, particularly in this country, it's about how much money you have, how much justice you get. Uh, so I then uh, read archaeology and anthropology and I was in something at Cambridge called The Footlights, which is a review. It's a sort of silly comedy review. And uh, a, a director saw me in it and uh, he said, come and work for me for a year. And I thought, that's a good idea. I will go and work in his theatre for a year. It'll be like having a gap year after university as well as before. And then while I was with him, somebody else offered me a job and somebody else offered me a job. And I am basically having the longest gap year in history. That is what's <laughs> happened. I had no intention of doing this for a living. Uh, I had no intention of... Uh, doing anything other than something a little bit serious. But I don't know what happened. I got distracted. Do you think it's too late? Maybe it's not too late. It's not too late to take up the human rights law. Yeah. Why not? I think so. Maybe I'll do that. You're here first on this podcast. <laughs> human rights law next for Sandy. Uh, but what sort of environment was that like for a young woman working in television, you know, children's television? Was the material dreadfully gendered? Was the environment dreadfully gendered? Uh, well, it was a good start for me because uh, I had a really unusual producer uh, a man called John Dale, and the entire show was improvised, and I led the show. 
so from the beginning, I'm afraid, I had a, an agenda about uh, all the girls being shown to be able to do everything. I was always the one who had the power tool if a power tool was needed, uh, showing that uh, there was a history uh, to what was happening uh, on the show, um, uh, that we could look back to other people that we could admire. Um, so because it was a children's television show, but it was live an hour and three quarters on a Saturday morning, um, I was very much able to put forward the kind of message that I felt I wanted young women uh, and young men uh, to hear. Uh, so probably that was a very good start for me. Uh, then it went downhill after that, but that one, <laughs> well, that one was great, and I thoroughly, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Before we get to the going downhill bit, if <laughs> if we could go back in time and talk to the younger you, would you have said you were a feminist then? Would you have yeah, used that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I didn't know the word. I didn't know the word, but I remember being enraged as a child a lot. Um, so when my my father was a journalist and he travelled all over the world. And uh, I remember him coming back from one of the, uh, covering one of the early Apollo missions. So he'd been out to Houston. And he brought back my brother, a model of the Saturn V rocket for him to build. And he brought back a little silver necklace for me of the rocket. And I remember throwing it, throwing it with some gusto. I was so angry because I knew that my brother would be useless at building the rocket. <laughs> and I would totally build a brilliant rocket. <laughs> and I did not want jewelry. And I must have been seven or eight. Uh, so uh, that rage and also I think from a very early age watching my father who was brilliant and wonderful going off to work and watching what my mother did and thinking that she is in the house that looks really rubbish mm. I don't want to do that I don't know I don't want to do what she's doing she goes shopping and makes food every day that must be so boring my dad goes and meets amazing people that must be way more interesting. So, yeah, I've always, 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 from my first thoughts, <laughs> been somehow a feminist without even knowing that's what I was. And when would you have first put the word to it, that feeling of rage or, you know, unequal treatment? Uh, at school, I led a strike when I was six because I thought the <laughs> boys had been allowed out to play in the rain and the girls hadn't. <laughs> I was enraged. Why, I because wanted... girls can't get wet? Uh, apparently it was not good for our shoes. I can't remember what the reason was, right. but uh, it never happened again. <laughs> extraordinary, extraordinary. I do remember in high school, the boys studying woodwork, metalwork and electronics while we girls studied sewing, cooking and laundry. Laundry is a good one. That's a very good one. It's it's stayed with me since. I'm, I, very, I'm I, very good at the laundry. I see. I love all that, those those things, those divisions early on. You just think, wow, they didn't even see. But I was the first girl in my, I went to American high school eventually. I was the first girl to be allowed to do shop, which was uh, metalwork and woodwork. Ah. Uh, because no girl had ever asked before. Oh, and maybe just... that's where I went wrong. I should have asked. I didn't <laughs> did you ask? ask? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Mm. I uh, did not learn much in sewing and cooking. I don't do either. But I do do laundry. Very good at getting stains out but of I, silk shirts. But the really weird thing is I love sewing. I love sewing and cooking. I think it's, I think it's great. But my, I teach my son as well. My son's a brilliant cook. I just wish we'd all relax about the gender stuff and Absolutely. You know, do the thing that you're interested in. And so that strike at six, kids' TV... Um, you know, a sort of a feminist approach to it, even if you wouldn't put the feminist label on it. When did you learn a bit more about women's equality and, you know, women's choices? Um, well, I started to see it um, uh, 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 pretty much as soon as I entered into the comedy scene. Mm. So uh, you're talking about the uh, the 80s, uh, the uh, mid, mid to late 80s. And if you were on a comedy bill as a woman, you would be the only woman. Uh, there was, I don't know what happened. I don't know what they were worried about. If there was two of us, they, our cycles would collide and we'd become bad temp. <laughs> during the show. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Um, and uh, the Comedy Store, which was the first sort of major comedy club here in London, 
Um, they didn't have a, a, a loo for the, for the turns, for the com comedians. So there was just a sink in the corner of the dressing room and all the boys used to relieve themselves in the sink. And that's because it had never occurred to them that a woman might turn up and need to be relieved. Right. And I was expected to go through the crowd and the queue and go and be with the public uh, and use the facilities there. So, so they, even the basics of making you feel comfortable as a young woman uh, on stage were not there. And then uh, pretty much if there was a scene with the, you know, say a doctor and a nurse, the boys would immediately presume that you're going to play the nurse. Mm. And it would get very, I would always try and get in first. If they, I knew it was a scene with the doctor and a nurse, I'd try and jump on the stage straight away and say to the boys, so nurse, could you go and get me a, you know, a scalpel or something? So they established really quickly that they're not going to play the nurse at this point. But you, so you fought, you fought even within the scenes, that the improvised scenes that you were doing. Uh, and how many times have I stood on stage and... Remember the audience shouted, show us your tits, or, you know, mm. any of this. You just think, oh, wow, okay. Mm. Uh, you know, and if you ask for it, can I have an unusual occupation, please? Always, always, as a woman, you'd get gynecologist and then a big laugh from the men in the audience. Right. And it's just, it was yeah. just, you just, yeah, it's that sign. And a lot of women gave up because they sighed at about midnight when they were being asked to show their cleavage to somebody mm. and thought, you know, I could be at home. And we lost a lot of great early talent who just couldn't do that, couldn't keep up with the pressure of being shouted at. No. And there's been a lot of uh, revelations through the Me Too movement now about sexual harassment in comedy where uh, female comedians have said, you know, that other comedians, venue owners, agents had um, preyed on them in a way that really adversely affected their careers. They didn't take the gigs and if you don't do the gigs you don't get your mm. name out there, you don't hone your craft mm. and it ultimately told as to whether they stayed in the career or got get a, got ahead. Um, did you feel that? No, then? I mean I came out, uh, well I've been out as far as I know from my first waking sexual thoughts so I, you know uh, I think the boys didn't quite know what to do with me. I seemed to be some sort of hybrid uh, to them. I wasn't quite one of the girls, I wasn't quite one of the boys. Um, so I didn't get that, but I certainly witnessed enough of it. I witnessed enough of, uh, of young women whose careers were either going to be promoted or not promoted uh, because they would or they would not put up with certain behaviours. Um, I mean, in a weird way, being a lesbian probably protected me um, because it was a kind of, they all went, oh, sad is, sad is off limits, you know. But mm. I, I probably got more uh, slapping on the back and they all wanted to know how I had sex and they, they thought it was fine to ask me uh, all the time. Right. It, was, it was absolutely fine to be for them to, in some way, to be titillated by the thought of whatever it was I might be doing. Yeah, so I mean, the kind of questions you wouldn't ask somebody, anybody, no, you know. No. So that sort of purient interest, but it sort of protected you in some ways yeah. too. Yeah. Do you think the Me Too movement will have changed anything about that in comedy? Would people be male comedians, male venue owners, would they be more careful now because they could be outed and read about themselves on I, I Twitter? Wanna yes. I want you to, want to say yes. You want to say yes? yes. I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure. I think it's just subtler. I think it, what happens now is maybe not quite so overt. Um, but uh, a lot of the time now you get a woman and she's been slapped on the bum once too often and then the boys just go, can't you take a joke? It's the can't you take a joke part of it. Yes, when your business is supposed to be jokes. Yeah, it's just really tiring. Um, and there's a sort of sense that we're all, you know, being a bit po-faced when we just say, would it be okay if we went to work and didn't suffer sexual harassment while we were there? Would mm. that be okay? Mm. And then particularly in the comedy business, you're thought to be a bit kind of, you know, of a harrod in some way. Um, so I'd like to say it's changed. I, I, I don't think it's changed enormously. It's just maybe not quite so overt.
more, definitely more to do. Now, your own career, you just seem to have defied so many stereotypes, which is just fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, on gender, of course, you replaced Stephen Fry as the leader of the TV comedy panel show QI in 2016, and you were noted as the first female presenter of a British mainstream TV comedy panel show. I mean, in getting to that stage, you know, you're would be seen around the world now. I mean, we have QI in Australia, so wandering the streets of uh, Melbourne or Sydney, you'd be recognised. Uh, what challenges have you felt, you know, getting to that stage well, of being there yeah. as a woman? I mean, I'm, I'm coming up to my 40th year in show business and it's not been it's not been a straightforward, like, yeah, you know, I host a big show. Um, so uh, many years ago, I can't think how long ago it must be, the early 90s, uh, they started a show here called Have I Got News For You, which is a, uh, it's a big news satire program. And they made two pilots. They made one with a man called Angus Dayton and one with me. Mm. And they said to me, absolutely straightforwardly, um, we thought yours was much better, your pilot, Sandy, but we've decided we couldn't possibly have a woman in charge of the news. So oh. I would have been the first woman to host a major panel show all those years ago. Except they were, nobody even tried to hide it. Nobody even tried to say, whoops, you know. They just weren't having it that a woman could do this kind of show. Uh, and then I took over something called uh, The News Quiz, which I'd been on as a guest for a long time on Radio 4. And again, it was a satire program. Uh, first woman uh, to host that show. Uh, and the morning after the very first broadcast, I got a, a call from the producer who said, good news, Sandy, no complaints. And it was, it was that there'd been no complaints about a woman being in charge. And again, it's not all that long ago. Uh, and the big issue with QI was was uh, not really whether anybody could take over from Stephen, but a woman, surely. A woman couldn't have a brain big enough to, to do take QI. Her, to do QI. Uh, so it's, you know, there are still times when you think, wow, OK, we're still fighting those battles. Uh, and and audience feedback, has that been gendered in any way or was the audience actually better than the decision makers? No, the audience has been fantastic and the show is, I'm in my fourth year now, um, we're in the midst of recording at the moment and uh, 700 people come and whoop and cheer at every single recording and uh, so I'm, it, we're fine, it's mm. fine. Uh, so, the, the, the bit they don't tell you when you do a show like that is they do tell you the answers beforehand. I right. mean, I know, I've known Stephen since I was 19 and I know he's read a book or two. <laughs> but he didn't know all those things. It's, it's literally written on a card in front of you. It's not no. that difficult. It's not that difficult. <laughs> Surely no, not. I'm telling you now. It's the secret of the trade. Right. I, I thought big brains, his and yours. Um, it almost seems, though, that the decision makers about how the shows get put together could be more conservative than the audience that's watching. I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, and weirdly, you'd like to say it's because there are lots of boys in charge, and that isn't the case. It's often right. the women who are more anxious about putting another woman in charge, and I don't know what that's about. Oh, that's interesting too, and a little bit disappointing. It is disappointing. Yeah. They're, they're usually not the one. Maybe they've struggled so hard to get to where they are that they just, I don't know, whether they want to rule the roost. I don't know how that works. I don't know, and it's just a, that's just always the disappointment. A woman who won't help another woman, I never really get that. No, maybe they might be thinking that it would be um, viewed as not a merit-based choice if a woman's picked another woman. Yeah, they're uh, going, oh, she, typical. She, yeah, yeah, typical. Yeah, typical. Only be doing that because they all yeah. stick together. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, all of the stereotyping that goes on. I mean, in terms of defying stereotypes, um, second, as you've referred to, uh, you publicly came out as a lesbian um, right back in the early 1990s. So a long time ago, attitudes were far harder then. Mm. Uh, you were famously dropped as a presenter as a result. Um, looking back on that experience to where we are now, what's different, 
is it that, is has, it... that has changed so dramatically and so thrillingly, which is why I continue to believe in great change right. for gender equality. Because um, that's happened in my lifetime, and it pretty much happened over a 20-year period, this phenomenal change. So uh, my daughter is 14. She talks now about friends of hers, contemporaries of hers, who have decided that they're going to come out or that they're gender fluid, all these other expressions. It's just wonderful. And they don't think anything about it. And they don't. And when I explain to her what happened when I came out, she's baffled by this. And at my, uh, my wedding, uh, my son spoke, and he said, I think it's great that mum can now get married. I just don't get why it took so long. They, they are that generation have totally got it, have got the message, don't understand what the problem was in the first place. And that is so wonderful. Um, when I was at Cambridge, there was no LGBTQ, whatever all the many letters are now, uh, societies. There was nothing. There was just nothing. And in fact, my college tried to throw me out because they discovered I was having a relationship with a woman and only allowed me to stay because of my excellent academic record. <laughs> so if you're going to be gay... Be smart about it. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, and that, so the, but, uh, this year they're giving me a fellowship, the college, uh, to say sorry. I mean, it's long. It was a long time coming. Mm. Um, but they are sorry, and I think and I think you have to accept people made mistakes. People are afraid of the other. They're afraid of things they don't maybe think they've come across before. And now I defy any anybody to not know a colleague who's. Uh, gay or bi or trans or whatever or a member of their family or um, somebody in the street uh, what's happened was it just grew and grew and grew but when I came out uh, I was unaware of another woman out in British public life uh, and it was uh, yeah it was scary <laughs> it's scary because of the the, the backlash the feedback yeah. you got people wanted to kill me yeah uh, yeah and then we had to have police protection and uh, the Daily Mail hated me. I think they still hate me, and I'm okay with that. All right. I'm okay with that. I'm living with that. I'm coping. Unbelievably brave of you. <laughs> I, I do think to myself, and I, I appreciate from um, the perspective of uh, you, family members, young people, um, it's a question of why didn't this happen a long time ago. But if we actually look at the same-sex marriage campaign... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's it's brought change comparatively quickly. Yeah, it has. You know, in the in the broad sweep of human history. And I wonder what the campaign for gender equality can learn from the same sex marriage campaign about what worked to change attitudes um, so quickly that people went from um, sending hate mail and death threats, and and maybe there would still be an element that would do that. But overwhelmingly today, I think people are very accepting, prepared to vote in a plebiscite to say yes to same-sex marriage, prepared to vote for politicians who are pro-same-sex marriage. We've seen that all around the world. Why do you think that progress got made as quickly as that? What can we learn? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think it was two things. I think there was a very clever campaign, particularly on the part of uh, Stonewall, big campaigning group in this country, which is that we kind of knew where we had to start, and where we started, weirdly, was in the city of London. We started with the banks. Right. We started with the banks and asking them to sign up to a charter of diversity. Uh, and we made them understand that actually it was worth their while financially. 
always good for them, diversity in their workforce, diversity on their boards, uh, accepting that the person who was hiding something, some big part of themselves, uh, was probably not being the most efficient person at the workplace. So we began in the city and we got businesses to sign up. We got the big banks to sign up. Um, and gradually the big banks uh, started to have uh, LGBT. Once you go in and you start talking about it, uh, I remember going to... Actually, I think it was the Department of Health and Social Security, and I went and gave a talk about uh, gay rights to them. And uh, uh, one person put his hand up and he said, I, I don't know why you've come here, because we don't have any of that here. <laughs> and I went, I went, well, here's a weird thing. I have this thing called gaydar. They didn't know what I was talking about. I said, I have a special radar, and I can spot any gay person in the room. And I could immediately feel the whole... It's not true. I literally can't do that. I'm hopeless at it. But anyway, the whole room kind of went like that. And afterwards, one at a time, I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, I knew you could see me because nobody else has ever been able to see me in this room, and I knew you could. Wow. And it was so wonderful. And then what happens is two people meet and start chatting, three people meet and start chatting. So we discovered that business was a great way through. Uh, and, and if the banks are signing up to it, then some of the uh, people that work with them want to sign up to it. And so we had a sort of charter that was really hard to say, I don't want to do that, that's a bad idea, which was really a very simple human rights charter, which is let's just treat everybody nicely. Yes. So that was a good thing. Um, the, then in society, I think what happened is, you know, somebody comes out in the public eye uh, and is says, I'm fine and I'm here. Then somebody watching them has the courage to say, I'm going to come out. And gradually what happened, it was like little lights going on all across the country. And somebody's cousin came out. And then they said, oh, wasn't Uncle Thing? He always lived with that other guy all his <laughs> life. And, and people started to realise that it's people everywhere. It's people everywhere. It's somebody that you know. Uh, and we're not frightening. Uh, in fact, we're good to know because we give great interior design tips. So it's good to know gay people. Um, uh, we just were perfectly nice, lovely members of society and it snowballed. And I think it became an unstoppable thing because once you know somebody, you can't really say you've got two heads or you're going to frighten the horses in the street. You just realise it's a perfectly nice person. Whether that parallel works with gender equality, I don't know, mm. except that I do absolutely think there are ways of uh, our leaders taking a, a role in this. I think w Iceland has just declared uh, um, unequal pay illegal, just yes. for the whole country. Like, mm. And you just think... Yeah, that, let's just do that. Okay, <laughs> Let's just do that because that's really straightforward and simple. And let's have every single business put its house in order. And I think begin to think that what we're actually going to need is we're going to need a, a similar charter for every business in this country. And we need to start at the big ones and say, will you sign up to this charter? These are the things that we need in terms of childcare, in terms of flexible working, in terms of minimum wages and so on, which will make it possible for women to access the workforce in an equitable manner. If we can have that and take that idea, which is how Stonewall started with the gay rights thing, I think we might might be on to something. Uh, the thing of it spreading because everybody knows somebody, everybody knows a woman, it's not really working. So. <laughs> everybody does know a woman. I, I, I do think the creative um, industries did play a role, though, the um, TV characters that started getting written into scripts that were gay characters, the Hollywood movies, you know, I, I think that helped. So I think it ha has helped. I don't think it's, um, I mean, I still get very uh, irritated by uh, the portrayal of lesbians generally uh, mm. in the media. It would be nice to see some uh, more, I don't know, uh, just ordinary Real uh, roles. You mm. know, my wife and I discuss whether the tomatoes have gone off. Honest to God, it's not that exciting. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's not the most thrilling <laughs> life. It's, 
it's like anybody else's life, yes. really. And it would be nice to see some of that portrayal, I think, in the mass media. Yes, absolutely. On Wikipedia, um, <laughs> it now, of course, um, if we ne need to know anything, uh, we used to look at books. Um, perhaps we watch QI and learn some important facts. Or we Google and we get Wikipedia up and we think that's the truth, more for us uh, part of the time, uh, because it's not right. Uh, but does it properly represent women or is that online environment as gendered as the traditional history books have been? Uh, it's terrible, is the truth of it. It's absolutely terrible. So overall, in the whole of uh, recorded history, women represent 0.5% of recorded history. I don't know what we were doing the rest of the time. Laundry, probably. I imagine we were busy. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Who Cooked the Last Supper, which is all about, which is all about uh, how women have, uh, have gradually disappeared from history. So Wikipedia is a marvellous uh, idea, and the idea is that it's a crowdsourced encyclopedia of knowledge. What a fantastic notion. Uh, but what's happening is that women are disappearing. Uh, so 90% of Wikipedia's content is about men and their achievements. And 9% is about women. 1% still making up the nine. Right. Uh, so uh, that proportion is completely out of kilter. And uh, we desperately need to do something about it. And part of the problem is uh, it's edited. There is, it's edited by volunteers, but there's about 350,000 kind of uber volunteers. Right. They tend, no offence to them, uh, to be the same kind of guy who's got the time to sit and do it uh, and hasn't got laundry to do, presumably. Yes, isn't doing the housework Just sitting as in much. his pants, yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, are actively act, uh, editing women out. So there's a, there are two issues. One is that women on achievements are not being inputted and the other is that women are actively being edited out. So And so the editing out, that's done maliciously because they want to take women out? It depends or? how you want to see it. Malicious is a very strong word. Uh, mm. 2014, the list of great American novelists was changed so that there was a subsection called great American women novelists. So the, the great American novel was entirely written by a man. All of them were written by men. And women were allowed to be great American novelists, but in a subsection. Right. The diminutive section where women were allowed to reside. Is that malicious or is that how you see the world? Mm. Is it, it, it's very hard to say. I think it's a massive shift that we need to make with a few people to say this is not acceptable. Um, but we know of thousands of scientists, for example, doing amazing work. Um, I'm going to get her name wrong. Canadian physicist in October 2018. I think it was Donna Strickland. Um, she, they had been trying, her fans of her work uh, I like this. There are fans of physicists. It makes you happy. Uh, had been trying to get a Wikipedia page for her for years, and she had been constantly taken down as not notable enough. So oh. she wasn't thought to be enough. Her page went up in October 2018 because she won the Nobel Prize for yeah. physics. Yay! <laughs> That's what it takes. It just takes to get your Wikipedia to page. To get your Wikipedia page. Woo! It wouldn't be very long Wikipedia if it only had the Nobel Prize winners on it. So I'm saying that women are being held to a different standard uh, uh, in Wikipedia. Um, I've spoken to Jimmy Wales about this, who uh, was the originator of the project. Uh, and it, it is a thing that we are intent on uh, trying to change if we can. Literally changing history. We are, I want to rewrite history. It's my next plan, my next big uh, project. Is, uh, is to write a big theatre show about the women's history of the world um, and uh, to tour, hopefully, your own wonderful country uh, and uh, here in the United States and get every single member of the audience to commit to adopting one woman and making sure her entry is correct in Wikipedia or to inputting a new person who hasn't been put in yet so that we can try and encourage people uh, who maybe think that they're not computer savvy 
to say, you could be a Wikipedia editor. All you have to do is one person will teach you how to do it. Please, will you look after this person, adopt them, make sure they're properly recorded in history. And I think if we could do that, and I want to roll it out to schools and colleges, they can have the play and say to them, right, everybody, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it as a grassroots movement. Every one of you is going to become an activist, but only have to be an activist for one person. It's not that big a deal. That's fantastic. Can hardly wait. <laughs> We're on the Wikipedia campaign. Now, the other stereotype, of course, you've busted is you've been someone uh, in broadcasting, in entertainment, who's been actively political with the establishment of the Women's Equality Party. Now, you know, obviously I come from Labor politics, so looked at politics through that lens. But what were you trying to achieve with the Women's Equality Party and what do you see uh, the future for voting for women who really care about making sure we finally, finally, finally uh, fix this problem of gender equality? Well, I don't know enough about the politics in your country to make any comments about the different ways in which the parties work. Uh, all I can say is that in this country, it doesn't matter which of the main political parties you adhere to, whether it's Labour or Tory or Liberal Democrats, putting women first has never been uh, an objective. Ever, ever. There's always been something better to do. Uh, if you look at the most recent debates about uh, Brexit, the women's issues, like social care and uh, child care, all this, there's been nowhere in the conversation. It's been about defence and about manufacturing, about industry, about the city, about the big butch yeah, things that uh, we're all being told we ought to be worrying about. Um, if, if we lose the 92,000 uh, social care workers uh, who currently come from the, economic, uh, the European economic area, if we lose them from this country, it's going to be women who are going to be taking the brunt of that. If you look at the Leave Means Leave campaign in Brexit, there's a board of the Leave Means Leave campaign. There are 44 members of the board. Seven are men called John. One is a woman. Okay, so it doesn't matter to me which bit of politics you, you come from, whether you come from the left or whether you come from the right. Women's issues have never, ever been at the forefront of any of the political parties' minds. So... What, what Catherine Mayer and myself, who we co-founded the party, we were just uh, exhausted by this. And what we realised is that it's perfectly possible from the left, from the right, for people to come together, men and women, and agree certain issues and, and, and find a central platform where women will benefit. And that was the idea behind the Women's Equality Party. We are the only party in the world that hopes one day to no longer exist. We hope to be done. I do, you know, I have the understairs covered to sort. I've got work to do. I can't be you know, spending all my time doing these things. And what's happened is that uh, at least by existing, and it had to be a political party because you had to stand against candidates so that you could then debate with them, they've had to pay some attention. Mm. They've had to go, oh, OK, maybe we are. We had a candidate in the London mayoral election. In fact, one in 20 people in London voted for our candidate. It's a fantastic result for a party nobody's ever heard of. And at the hustings, she spoke last, and I think there were seven candidates before her. She was the first one, the last candidate, to even mention the women of London. Wow. To mm. even mention anything. And afterwards, the current mayor came up to me and he said, I like some of your ideas, I'm going to steal them. And I said, I don't care, help yourself, I'll wrap them up and send them to you. Please just make them happen. So steal from us, borrow from us. Whatever it takes, uh, we need to have change. And um, I don't want to wait, what is it, another 70 years in this country to close the pay gap? Maybe, if we don't go backwards. 
Yeah, you're right about the time frames for change. The World Economic Forum keeps giving us, you know, disturbing statistics like 202 years to close the economic gap. I'm turning 58 this year and I don't think I'm going to make it to 260, but, even eating my vegetables. But so it doesn't we, make any sense. We've got to get on with it. It doesn't make any sense. The value, the increased value to the GDP in this country, if every woman who wanted to work was able to because of childcare, is £180 billion pounds, uh, by 2030. Who doesn't want that in the country? Who doesn't think that's a good idea? But they don't go about it in the right way. They don't go about it right and think, OK, let's invest in childcare because the long-term benefits to everybody are absolutely fantastic. A huge. Now, I'm sure we could talk all day, but we need to come to our big questions oh, section. Big okay. questions. Uh, we're asking... If it's about colour preference, I'm no good at this game. <laughs> we're asking all of our guests these big <clears throat> questions. We'd like to start with a fun fact. And the fun fact for you, maybe it's not a fun fact, I'll let you judge. <laughs> uh, there was a survey carried out in 2016. Right. That was the most comprehensive analysis of comedy panel shows. And it found that only once in the history of British TV and radio, um, up to 2016, had there been an all-female lineup. Have we improved since 2016? Yeah, well, I, my shows have, for sure. Right. <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, so uh, uh, so QI, for example, we we have one boy who is a permanent fixture. Alan. But, but we now have many, many panels where Alan is the honorary boy. Uh, so it, that has changed. Um, the big change that we need to make uh, really is to have more women in charge. We need to have more female hosts. Mm -hmm. Um, because it has a knock-on effect. Um, women who maybe are afraid to come on a show where they've got to show off and be a bit clever and all those things, somehow when there's a woman host, they're more inclined to say yes. So I, I do think we need to have more women hosts and, you know, I, not just me. I mean, there's lots of great women out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, what's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career if you had to pick one moment where you just said... This uh, is it. Uh, well, actually, it kind of worked out for me. So uh, when I was trying to earn a living in, in the early years, uh, I used to write speeches for corporate people. You know, I used to go along and I'd write the big uh, end of year speech for the president of some company or other. And I went along to a car company, which shall remain nameless. <laughs> and it was the CEO of the car company. Uh, and he kept me waiting for ages outside his office. Uh, and he uh, finally came out. He said, when is the writer getting here? And I said, I'm, I, am, I am the writer. I thought you were probably the secretary. I said, no, I, most writers don't have secretaries. I am the actual writer. I said, well, I come in, but I mean, this is hopeless. You, there's no way you can possibly understand anything about the car. I mean, look at you. It is ridiculous. I said, well, I tell you what, you're probably right. Um, I've got a tape recorder. Why don't you just do the speech, extemporize the speech that you had planned to give, and let me just see what I can do. So he went home and I literally typed up what he said, but I mean, and made it into proper English, sent it back to him, charged him £5,000, and he gave it word for word. <laughs> so, so it was a horrible moment, but, you know. You kind of got your own back, yeah. which is fantastic. Now, if you had uh, all of the power in the world, if we just made you our global leader for 24 hours... Is that what this is actually about? Because it's a nice surprise if that's what's happening. Uh, <laughs> if I had it in my gift, I would surely be thrilled. handing it across. I'm thrilled. Um, <laughs> thrilled, honoured. Um, you've got to thank your mum at this point. But no, if you had the power for 24 hours, what would you do to make women's lives better? I'd make childcare accessible to all and I'd make... Uh, the one thing that I think could change everything is that if we could make society understand that childcare is not a female responsibility, that would be great. That's... Then I think everything would change. You've got my vote for global leader. <laughs> now, Virginia says, Virginia Woolf, we're here in the Virginia Woolf building, she says, if you do not tell the truth about yourself, you cannot tell it about other people. What does Sandy say? I think that's absolutely right. I think secrets are a cancer of the soul. 
That's why I came out all those years ago when I was advised not to. Um, I don't mean you should be mean. Don't be mean and say things that are not nice. But be your best and truest self. I absolutely believe that. Um, uh, and sometimes that's painful. Uh, and sometimes you don't want to be that person banging the drum and saying, here I am, warts and all. Um, but what I know since I came out is when I get, you know, a young person who comes up to me and says, thank you, because I was able to tell my mum, then I'm good with that. What a fantastic note to end on, Sandy. It's been a delight. Thank it's you very much. It's been a much. pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.